Welcome to Three Panel Contrast, the podcast that puts comics works that are great and comics scholars that I think are pretty great into conversation with each other. Today we're taking a double dive into one of comics' most storied and versatile franchises, X-Men, with a look at the Asgardian Wars by Chris Claremont, Paul Smith, and Art Adams, compared to House of X slash Powers of Ten by Jonathan Hickman, Pepe Larraz, R.B. Silva, and Marte Gracia. Additionally, we'll feature a review of Joseph Dorowski's X-Men The Mutant Metaphor to help us make sense of the malleable metaphor clay that the children of the atom comprise. Previously on X-Men. Since 1963, X-Men has given us some of the highest highs and lowest lows in the world of comics. From a throwaway comic with questionable cultural appropriation to an elite long-form character-driven soap opera that redefined long-form storytelling, to a weird Grant Morrison book, to a stagnant franchise stuck in a creative glut of nostalgia for its own glory years, to whatever Jonathan Hickman is doing these days, X-Men has seen it all. So where do our two texts fit into all of this? Michael, Anna? X-Men as Guardian Wars is actually two distinct stories from 1985, held together by the scheming of Loki and the presence of the X-Men. In the first story, written by Chris Claremont and drawn by Paul Smith, Cyclops and his wife Madeline are busy in their civilian lives as independent plane operators when their plane with crew and passengers goes down in northern Canada. The resulting psychic backlash and a misunderstood comment sick the X-Men onto the Canadian superhero team Alpha Flight for the prerequisite misunderstanding battle. Alpha Flight realizes that whatever struck the two down is also affecting their teammate Snowbird, and so the combined teams go to investigate. There, they learn the missing friends and crew are not only fine, but have been granted new superpowers, and the utopia they've created can be spread around the world. However, as is gradually revealed, the new powers come from Loki and have a price tag attached to them that some are not willing to pay. To make a long story short, Loki fails to learn a lesson in consent and is left swearing revenge on the X-Men for rejecting his gift. In the second story by Claremont with Art Adam as artist, Loki makes good on this promise, kidnapping and brainwashing Storm to trick her into taking the place of an absent Storm god Thor. He leaves Storm's erstwhile charges the new mutants in the hands of the Enchantress, but a failed escape attempt leaves the team scattered across Asgard. Each team has their own experience in the Rainbow Realm, but band together to stop Enchantress. And in the second part of the story, the X-Men mount a rescue, but wind up requiring a rescue themselves. My history with Chris Claremont is, I think, different from many readers. My familiarity comes from the comics of my teenage years, which constitute a fantastic forerun that I enjoyed very much at the time, and Claremont's return to the X-Men, which is generally less, less well regarded. Uh, to this day, I know fairly well the highlights of Chris Claremont's famous X-Men run. It's almost impossible to be familiar with the X-Men and not have some familiarity with it but it's more of a knowing of it rather than first-hand experience. All of this is to say I went into the story knowing not what to make of it. Yes, it's the X-Men, but what about the X-Men has anything to do with Asgard? Is this really an X-Men story? The short answer is yes, unabashedly so. Moreover, it's a story that demonstrates Claremont's virtuoso skill at ensemble cast writing. Between the two stories, there are close to two dozen characters at play, and virtually everyone gets a moment to shine, whether it's Rachel navigating around her future father, Sunspot delighting at being recognized as a hero, or just a nifty strategic maneuver from Nightcrawler. Everyone gets a moment in the spotlight. I may not be overly familiar with Claremont, but as someone who has read their share of crossover annuals where one team or another appears largely redundant, it's an exceptionally impressive feat to balance all of these people. The art is mostly excellent as well. Uh, both Paul Smith and Art Adams are doing great work in their respective stories, though there is a bit of clash between styles, and Adams' cheesecake tendencies are a little uneasy to sit with the typical vision, visual approach to the New Mutants at the time. However, the art ultimately is secondary to the story, which is secondary to the masterful balance of character. The series fit with what we associate the X-Men's major themes may be questionable, but its real joy is the exploration of the mutants themselves and the relationships they create. When I chose to represent House of X and Powers of Ten for this episode, I didn't fully think through the fact that this would mean I'd have to try and summarize these series. But here we are, and here we go. House of X and Powers of Ten are an intertwined pair of X-Men franchise comic books created by writer Jonathan Hickman and artist Pepe Larraz, R.B. Silva, and Marte Gracia. 
Both series debuted and concluded this year, so 2019 for posterity. On the most basic level, these series represent yet another conceptual reset of the X-Men franchise, which has been reset so many times in the past couple of decades. I'm a scholar of Marvel Comics and find myself frequently confused about which events actually happened, who's dating who, and what anyone's powers are. And of course, particularly relevant to House of X, Powers of Ten, who's currently alive. All stories that take place within decades-old shared continuity universes are inevitably going to run into these sorts of problems. But the X-Men franchise is arguably especially problematic in this sense, owing to frequent time travel shenanigans, reality warping shenanigans, and of course, the particularly complex emotional relationships between the characters. In some ways, the X-Men franchise has been a victim of of its success. Since the height of the franchise's popularity in the early 90s, it's kind of been fighting a never-ending battle to recapture its former glory. While the franchise is obviously still very popular, the comics are known within the 21st century context for being particularly polarizing. There's a consistent demand among fans for a return to the real or good X-Men storytelling of old, but fans and creators and the company itself seem very divided about how exactly to do that. Jonathan Hickman is the latest creator to try. So on to that summary. The major revision of canon that happens in this series that kind of shapes everything else is the revelation that geneticist and sometime paramour of Charles Xavier, Moira McTaggart, is a mutant. And specifically, a mutant who is reincarnated each time she dies and compelled to live out her life again, beginning in the same place and moment in time, equipped with all the memories of her previous life or lives. Moira changes over the course of several lives, from an anti-mutant radical to a pro-mutant radical who shapes Xavier's mission and the always imperiled future of mutant kind in complicated and still not completely clear ways. House of X and Powers of Ten jump between multiple timelines, but cluster their action around four central fulcrums. These are... Stay with me here. Year one, aka the dream, in which Moira first encounters a young Xavier at Oxford. Year 10, aka the world, which is effectively the Marvel Comics universe present. Year 100, aka the war, which depicts a dystopian future in which mutants are on the brink of extinction. And year 1000, aka the ascension, in which all life on Earth is about to be absorbed Borg style into the consciousness of a technological, I guess, race known as the phalanx. These timelines incorporate and manipulate a whole bunch of different characters and events from X-Men franchise history. Boiling it down, though, all of these possible futures which Moira, Xavier, and sometimes supervillain and current ally Magneto are seemingly united in trying to prevent are used to explain and sometimes justify a new status quo for mutant kind. The status quo involves all mutants coming together to live inside a utopian habitat created by the living mutant island known as Krakoa. Krakoa is an independent state, supported by the sale of Krakoan flowers capable of curing various human diseases. Within the Krakoan habitat, Xavier and co. not only preserve mutant kind, but grow it, literally. A central plot point is the development of a gooey, pod-based regeneration process that's effectively capable of bringing mutants back from the dead and ensuring eternal life. If you haven't read any of these series, I'm sure that summary was basically incomprehensible, and for that I very much apologize. In the discussion that follows, we'll talk about whether we're able to make things clearer or even more complicated, though my money's on the latter. We'll talk too about what worked for us with this later reset and what didn't, how it might change the meaning of Marvel's mutant metaphor, and how it will affect the future of the X-Men franchise. So I think uh, in the two introductions that we just heard, the two excellent introductions that we just heard, um, what we see is um, a sort of fundamental conflict in X-Men as an intellectual property, where the franchise is known for its character work very specifically. Uh, in fact, Claremont is widely regarded as um, someone who steals their plots from like whatever's in the movie theaters that week. Uh, and it doesn't matter, right? The plot is just the vaulting off point for the character development. But in Anna's account of, of Hickman, what we're seeing is again, maybe an address of a long-standing problem in the X-Men intellectual property uh, in general, that it, it's lacking narrative propulsion. Yeah. Um, so I think maybe this is the most fundamental contrast between these these two texts. And I was just wondering what your thoughts were on the relationship between narrative and character uh, in, in the hands of these different creators. Both of these can be considered events, comics in a sense, even though, you know, Asgardian Wars is not really an event comic mm-hmm. in the modern sense, but it is, you know, crossover issues that right yeah guest stars yeah such but i mean so what these events do for the franchise in terms of as andrew says narrative propulsion i mean if it's something that we're putting everybody in an unconventional 
context or place that allows us to explore something about their characters, allows them to take on some new identities, some new roles, and that can move the story forward. How are these texts functioning? That's mm-hmm. sort of what you're asking, right? Well, I feel like it might almost make sense to start with Asgardian Wars, just because Hickman's sure. <laughs> run is going to be kind of a <laughs> counterpoint to that in some ways. I know we've all got some complaints about House of X, Powers of Tenet. I don't want us to get totally derailed by that at the expense of discussing what I think is a very interesting Claremont series. I think for me, the strongest part of it is the New Mutant uh, issue, where it's all about taking these characters outside of the element they've become accustomed to, putting them in a new world without a support system and seeing how they handle it. And I mean, that's more interesting than... Madeline Pryor suddenly getting weird godlike powers uh, again. <laughs> Don't forget an awesome new costume, and everyone yeah. gets way taller. Yeah. <laughs> it's important uh, when you become a god, you become really tall. Tall I people think unite. That it's almost all ex- character exploration in the sense that uh, Loki himself is kind of thinly sketched here. I think it's safe to say that yeah. his plan both times doesn't make a lot of sense as to like he waits an hour and kidnaps storm without the new mutants everything's fine uh he doesn't choose cyclops as the person to give these powers to everything's fine he is there to act as kind of an engine to push everything else along Mm -hmm. that archetypal kind of trickster figure role yeah i mean even in that case it's not like using the trickster side of things as much as even contemporaries like Simonson would use with Loki. Right. But in in that sense, there's not a lot of story there except as means to pit these characters against each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely got the sense from Asgardian Wars that it was just sort of, there are all these things happening, but the main point of putting the characters outside of their comfort zone is so that we can learn something about them as characters. That seemed to be, you know, and I was willing to like just be hand wavy about a lot of the details because I was interested in that character work. And I want to see how these people are going to react when they have to deal with these dilemmas of, is it worth it to let these (laughs) magical beings die if it means creating a better world for everybody else? And we're faced with this big existential crisis and how are the different characters going to react? And what is really satisfying about the Claremont run of X-Men is how consistent the characters are with how they react. They're yeah. sometimes surprised by somebody, but he really gets these characters. And that's definitely something I felt like was missing from House of X. But again, I don't want to get totally derailed by that, but I guess... Well, it might be a, a good this might be the derailing, though, yeah. right? Like, which characters did you feel were the most inconsistent in, in, in House, House of X? X? I'm just going to say House of X, even though we're talking about both of the series. Or Hawks Box, yeah. Yeah, you guys want me to say Hawks Box, and I just, I can't, <laughs> no, I can't no, stand good. it. Oh, I'm I can't stand all the creeps of the X-Men events, which I can't Hawks keep track of. <laughs> anyway. Well, I mean, my main complaint about it is just that... It focuses on, you know, the Moyer part is really interesting, and I think that's one of the things that I liked best about it, you know, Mm -hmm. inserting her into the X-Men universe as a more important and more interesting character than she's arguably been in the past. Which makes it, though, pretty disappointing that past the issue of her revelation, she doesn't have pretty much anything to do. Yeah, she sort of hands it off, right? That's her role. Yeah, she's a catalyst, rather. That she's some sort of mysterious mastermind behind the scenes, and there's a twist that hasn't happened yet. But, I mean, that's maybe getting ahead of ourselves. I I am holding out for there being a twist that hasn't happened yet. I mean, she is operating in a secret no place that is Moira's no place, and we don't really know what she's doing there, everything that she's seen, (laughs) or if she's telling Xavier everything. Maybe she hangs out with Sabretooth there. (laughs) Maybe. Uh, Anyway, we're getting, again, there's so much that happens in this series, and we're getting so off track. But, um, okay, my main complaint about it was just that it's this reset of the X-Men universe that's just going back to Xavier and Magneto again. Right. And we've had so much progression in this universe of moving those characters away from the center of this franchise. And to go back to that and have that be the big reset is a little bit disappointing to me. In terms of that character consistency, there are so many characters who have been leaders of the X-Men when Xavier wasn't a leader of the X-Men that I feel would have a problem with this new status quo in which they're effectively setting up like a non-democracy, totalian, totalitarian-ish government, yep. which is problematic for all sorts of reasons. And I do want to talk about how it affects our interpretation of the mutant metaphor as being 
about persecuted outsiders because I think it has a lot of implications there mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in terms of how it's perhaps making the X-Men villainous in ways that are problematic. But yeah, I mean, you know, you just think like characters like Storm or I'm always complaining about the characterization of Nightcrawler, my fave. <laughs> so, I mean, these characters, though, or Kitty Pride, these characters have been leaders of the X-Men in the past and I can't see them just going blindly back to Xavier and accepting his dream and his mission without some kind of brainwashing, without some kind of something to make them not protest against it. I mean, particularly Kitty Pryde. I just, she's been the voice of that next generation and like has been set up as the leader for that next generation in the Wolverine and the X-Men series. She was, you know, running the school, like, and that's recent, right? I just well, I mean, she also abandoned that position to hang well, out in space. I know, with her boyfriend. I know, yeah. which was uh, some more questionable <laughs> character work. But, but uh, yeah, I don't know these characters that or Storm, you know, going back way back was like groomed as the future leader of the X Men, and she's never allowed to be that for a long yeah. period of time. I mean, time. that could be an argument in Hickman's favor, though, that for a very long time the franchise has been stuck in stagnation, and this is at least a direction. Yeah. I guess, but it's Stagnant just... characters are consistent, right? Yeah, but like, <laughs> Which I mean... Is the problem. I think you could argue, though, if this is a move forward or a move backwards in terms mm-hmm. of who's running the X-Men franchise now, in terms of which characters are the most prominent, because it's like Magneto, Xavier, and Wolverine, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just like all like white dudes like that are in power, as usual. I, I really I like mean... what you were saying about like um, um, this sort of forced consensus as a contrast to what yeah. Michael was saying. Because yeah, like, exactly. the old Claremont run, they can't agree on yeah, anything. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, the slightest moral quandary comes up and they're stabbing each other. Yeah. And here they formed a nation state <laughs> with seemingly no debate. Yeah. Uh, it is kind of an interesting contrast. Well, yeah, exactly. And that that's a really good... You're summarizing it so much better than I did with my rambly response. <laughs> but but yeah, exactly. So that's, that's, that's sort of what I'm used to from X-Men. The idea that they could come together in this utopian space and not fight and all be together or, as the mutant race is so inconsistent and, with my understanding of these characters. And it would be so, like easy to make a little gesture towards that. I know, that I would... know. Like Wolverine has a couple of comments like, are you sure people sometimes can't be changed? I'm Wolverine. This is a thing I would typically say, but then that's the extent of it. And, and we see Emma Frost getting like some resistance. We see Mystique having some resistance, mm-hmm. but, um, but they're also framed as kind of the villains. Yeah, and exactly. Like, of course yeah. they'd be against it. I mean, I feel like they almost come out <laughs> as heroic just because the world that they're setting up is so problematic. So the fact that they're questioning it makes you be on their side a little bit. But at the same time, Mystique seems to be primarily there because of a promise to resurrect Destiny. Um, her girlfriend, not girlfriend. That should be her girlfriend. Recently made canonical. I thought that it had been. Thank you, Andrew X-Men Scholar. <laughs> uh, and then Emma seems to be there because she's going to be profiting off of it by running the business. Which again seems sort of antithetical to this we're all living in well, harmony thing. She's had a rough she has a few years she really of characterization has. last. She really has. Well, when has she not had a rough few years of characterization? Mm. Her outfits are slightly better, though, in this series. And we'll say we get her in, like, some not skeezy business suits, which mm-hmm. are fashionable and sexy without being, like, pornographic. So I appreciated that. I don't mind her in the odd, like, you know, <laughs> six-spot outfit with enormous cape. But, you know, it does make sense that if she's in a business meeting, you know, maybe she... Would choose a different outfit. Or in all. battle. Yeah, you know, either one really. I'm I'm trying to give I'm trying to give some like she's a sexy character and I get it and I'm trying not to complain, but at the same time I liked the diversity of her wardrobes in this series, I will say that. Mm-hmm. There's some iconic images of Emma Frost mm-hmm. that have been very much um um celebrated on X Twitter coming out of this series. Yeah, I mean she's hard not to like in this series. But again, like why do like does she get to seem at the very least like there can be debate about how she's being done here I, I i don't love this like reversion of her back into kind of villainy after kind of some of the progression that she made but at the same time she does sound like emma a version a defensible yeah. version of emma whereas that's definitely not true for a lot of other characters yeah i mean if you hickman has chosen to do a version of the x-men that is an ac- absolutely maximal number of characters yeah. don't set that up if you can't do the character work to yeah. justify that Right. And maybe that's one of the issues, too, is it, the character inconsistencies. We don't see any kind of transition. Yeah. Uh, we just see them having already moved from A to B. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, again, like, like, like 
if a character is perfectly consistent, that can be a form of stagnation. But um, when we talk about uh, maybe maybe Claremont's run, maybe even some things that we're seeing in these stories that we're, we're looking at, uh, it, it seems like the characters are very slowly going through things and, and being affected by it and changing a little bit through each experience. Are you finding that in kind of the Asgardian Wars series at all? It's a little harder to say in the sense that these are very compact events in comparison to um, Hawksbox, in the sense that while the new mutant side of things takes a little time to unfold, everything else seems to happen fairly quickly. I think, like, even as someone who has not read the original comics or the rest of the context here, that you can see things that have resonated throughout the X-Men history, that Danny Moonstar's becoming a Valkyrie here will become important to mm-hmm. her. Or um, Rachel and Cyclops's relationship uh, moving past their first meeting right rain meeting a wolf prince yeah which uh becomes very important when friggin x-factor decides to revisit it decades later well yeah i mean i don't mind being dropped in kind of in media res in the hickman series as a narrative conceit i don't hate that that's defensible and you can do that and we had that a little bit in asgardian wars right? right like i mean Scott and Madeline and the rest like go missing and then we don't know what happened to them until it gets revealed slowly. But the thing that I find different is that we get so much discussion of how this change has affected them and their reaction yeah. to this change. And mm-hmm. that's what the focus is. Their feelings and yeah, thoughts. Are... Yes. Exactly. I mean, we have two utopia stories. One of them is not shy about saying, well, this isn't perfect. Yeah. But I mean, as someone who's only, I haven't really been following weekly X-Men like regularly for the past like three years maybe mm-hmm. i was very confused about what the current status quo with each of these characters was going into this series and as much as again i think dropping us in and sort of explaining later is like it's exciting like i actually was more excited kind of in the first like sort of four maybe issues and then got sort of increasingly like less excited <laughs> i guess like it came to a conclusion that i found unsatisfying but um we were talking before the pod a little bit like Karima is here as a sentinel again, whereas, like, and I did look this up, so I wasn't wrong. The last time <laughs> we saw her, she'd been, like, desentineled, and yet she's here again as a sentinel, so I don't... I kept expecting some sort of twist where it was revealed that this is a completely new reality, you know, based on one of the reincarnations of Morris and none of the character or histories the of apocalypse. Yeah, yeah. I, I would really like a lot more seating to be like, here are some you got questions, we're going to answer them, and increasingly it seems like, well, we're not going to answer them, this is the status quo, get with it, or get off the boat. Because those kind of reboots are always the ones that are most frustrating to you as like a long-term fan, because certain things count. It seems to be like something mm-hmm. of the relationship between Jean Grey and Cyclops and Wolverine counts. That's like played with in the final issue where they like share a beer together. And I know that in one of the next issues, the map controversy is a suggestion (laughs) that they're in kind of a throuple, like of a kind. Yes. Uh, For those uh, wondering, the map of their apartments have adjoining bedrooms. Yeah. Which, you know, I'm all for that. And that's really interesting. And I like that as a concept. But at the same time, I don't understand what the accepted past between these characters is within this new reality. Therefore, I don't know how to read it because what has happened and what hasn't happened. And that. Right. These are all three characters who have died in recent memory and been resurrected. And it is unclear how they all relate to each other. So it just makes you not feel certain about how you should feel about it because you're not right. sure which narrative stakes are present and which ones aren't. It's like it wants to have its cake and eat it too, this kind of reboot. It wants to mortgage that emotional investment that you have with the characters, but not repay it because it's going to be very unclear about what the relationships are. Well, I mean, maybe one of the more fundamental um, conceits when we talk about consistency in X-Men is, and this argument has been made by actually a lot of comic scholars over the years, X-Men is a character-based book. Yeah, And I would argue Hawksbox is not. I think something that interests me is that you could frame it as, okay, this isn't about the X-Men as characters. This is about the X-Men as concept. But Mm -hmm. even then, this feels like a shift. This isn't mutant as societal metaphor. This is transhuman sci-fi story yeah, right yeah. which is a different which thing. yeah we and should talk about that i mean that was what you expect with, like, yeah someone describes it to you in that way and like hickman's doing a transhuman narrative and you're like yeah 
Yeah, another one of those from Hickman. Okay. But, you know, as, as I suggested in my intro, how that affects the meaning of the X-Men franchise is a huge question, which, again, was one of the larger issues I had with this book that, right. you know, I was willing to kind of put it aside for the sake of this book, but it'll depend for me how that plays out in the future because it yeah. was potentially hugely problematic. Well, it takes a fundamental binary, which is the idea that, that X-Men is about mutant versus human and then the metaphorical sort of connection that that creates. Mm-hmm. And it turns it into mutant versus human versus machine. Yeah. Uh, and like which two sides are going to ally with each other in which way against the third and, and create this sort of um, um, power relationship. Right. And we get some play with the concept of parenthood throughout for that. Yeah. Well, you know, a really succinct summary of how I think you could completely fix this story is if it was an Inhuman story instead of an X-Men story. I think but the Marvel Inhumans are... to little, replace yeah. the X-Men with the Inhumans before, and it I went know. so badly. I know. I think the, in, <laughs> yeah, the, the Inhumans are a bit of a third-rail narrative at the moment. <laughs> I understand that, but I would, have accept, I would have enjoyed this story a lot more in that context. Mm-hmm. But we can talk a little bit more. I mean, I could more. totally see Black Bolt doing all of this. Exactly, yep. exactly. Like... Yeah, weird clones, sign them up. And the consensus could be there as well pretty easily, I would say. Well, it almost makes me wonder if it's some sort of, like, Mario 2 thing, where it's like, was this originally an Inhuman story? And we just, a like, re-skin. slapped the X-Men on it and, like, called it a day? So maybe let's talk a little bit about power dynamics and how they operate in these two texts. I, I think maybe when we talk about um, the Asgardian Wars, what we're seeing is kind of a, a blow up of the fundamental mutant human power relationship. They go from having lasers where normal people don't have lasers, by the way. No, they're not lasers. They're concussive force blasts uh, to a point where now your mutants are like, there's one level higher. Now there's super mutants who can mm-hmm. control all reality. And obviously this is something that we'll see um, brought back into X-Men continuity with the Phoenix Five and a few other kind of stories. Yeah. Um, so what do you think Claremont is kind of doing there or exploring there in terms of power and why this sort of um, um, blow up that we see through the hands of Loki? Well, there's there's canon in Loki giving people powers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have more than a few character villains who exist through those means. Um, but in particular, I think what it does for the X-Men and the new mutants in these stories is that we see characters faced with the concept of a future where they're not different for their powers. I mean, I think I think Cyclops's one change is that he is less powered, mm. that he doesn't have to wear the visions anymore, that everyone else gets superpowers. He gets the ability to turn his superpower off. <laughs> I always find that funny going back to the old comics and it's like, it's just so painful to him that he has to wear these glasses. <laughs> I'm just like, is that that bad? I mean, but it's so red all the time. <laughs> oh and it's just so tortured about it. Melodramatic, and then every time Loki has because it's been happened so many times, like Cyclops, your visor is off, we can see your eyes, and it's just like, so stupid. Yeah, and that's and, the big romantic moment yeah. with Phoenix, oh, I know. <laughs> anyway. And we get a bit of a like not quite reverse, but a, a different version of that in Asgard, where I mean, some of the new mutants do not have a very good time in Asgard, but a few of them are like, we can practice our powers openly here. We are revered accepted for it. here. Like yeah. having powers makes you really cool and powerful <laughs> uh, rather than ostracized. Um, I think the only scene containing the new mutants in the Alpha Flight thing, they just, it's two characters that aren't, aren't even in the rest of the story. That Magic and uh, Doug have a confrontation with a bully in a diner just because Doug even brought up that mutants exist. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think about... Um the sort of shared thread across the two major stories in the Asgardian Wars of giving the characters what they desire the most. Thematically speaking, that is probably the most Loki thing that happens. Right. Uh, the idea of, oh, I gave you what you want, but haha, it's a trick. Yeah. Uh, it's even a monkey paw. He's not really trying to do that. He's trying to do something good. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I do like that the, it ends up being this thing with all this hand-wringing and character development for the X-Men. It's not what Loki intended Loki learns that he's kind of into Storm. That's, yeah, the, that's well, the one thing he comes out of this story All with. the despots are. It's <laughs> very true. Uh-huh. I don't know, I love that question, though, that you asked, Andrew, because I hadn't thought about Asgardian Wars and the connection between it and House of X in that way, but I see totally now why you wanted to pair these two. And it made me think differently about 
that theme in Asgardian Wars in terms of, I mean, one of the ways that X-Men is trying to modernize the superhero, right, is by not having superheroes like Superman who have all of the powers, right? Even though we have multiple Mm X-Men over the years that do have that, they're always a problem in this universe, Mm -hmm. I think, because of that. But so you have this team instead, and nobody is complete on their own. They have to work together as a team, as a family, as, you know, as in a group of friends, effectively, right? Right. Which kind of and deals with some of that, like, macho hysterics of the superhero genre that had existed before and that. And it, it's worked out very literally on the New Mutant side of things, where they're all separated and have to band back yeah, together. Yeah, exactly. And that's always an X-Men kind of theme, right? Yeah, this is actually how he drives his, his main sort of narrative tension. Um when the X-Men are together, the battle's over. Yeah. It's like when Superman's transformed. The problem is well, getting them together. Then you get, like, the exceptionally prolonged periods where the teams don't know each other are alive. Yeah, and they can't call each other. That's maybe a little <laughs> drawn out, but... Yeah, which again comes back to the Hickman consensus and how mm-hmm. that feels a little bit abnormal for well, the book. Especially because it's not the, like, culminating point, it's the starting point. Right what happens next and i don't think he's given us enough of a carrot to be like well what does happen next right but i mean he's really well first of all i should make clear i realized that you know fantastic four had done that concept before you know x-men did that concept of you know everybody has a specific power and we have to band together as a team it's not that it was totally new but i think maybe sort of brought to know sort of new heights and new complexities with especially claremont's x-men but the I mean, heroes gathered to fight a threat that no one hero could gather yes, alone. Exactly. Anyway, fight alone. Anyway, anyway, anyway. <laughs> but anyway, the, the point that I thought was interesting about the Ice Guardian Wars thing is when they're given godlike powers, they all fall apart, right? Mm. And they mm-hmm. have to deal with how that's wrong because, in a sense, you're dealing with the meaning of the X Men franchise, right? Although that's that's maybe the weaker part of that that we have yeah. this cast of never before seen well maybe knowing claremont might have yeah. some of them might have been seen before yeah. but generally blank slates yeah, yeah, that sure. we suddenly care very much about what these two uh, white supremacist dudes think about <laughs> yeah so there's this like science team that's on the plane with madeline and scott and they also get transformed into gods and then we suddenly have to care about these yeah. characters mm-hmm. i mean in claremont style and claremont's credit every one of them gets something like at least a beat but it does feel a bit of a, of a distraction yeah yeah and then in the the new mutants portion uh, of the series you again have these characters who get everything they want but their desires are kind of less noble than the traditional heroic variations so sunspot likes being this like celebrated brawler Ilyana likes being evil yeah. uh, that's super duper fun um so it, they're personal interests become kind of um, um, compromising of the moral standards that the team sort of represents intrinsically, I think. Maybe. Well, that's interesting in terms Which, of them being teenagers. Too. Yeah, and, yeah, and draws on their larger story arcs. Yeah, and that idea of um, indulgence versus communal suffering. <laughs> yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. We see that play out a little bit. So if we, if we sort of channel this back to Hickman, we have a very different power dynamic. And I think it does come back to consensus and perceiving the character work in Hickman's story as being about the collective and the collective as a macro character. Mm-hmm. So what you have is um, this nation, let's call it, that all of a sudden has extreme power. It has economic power, obviously, because it has this this drug that the world wants. It has political power because we see the X-Men going around and influencing major political forces. And then you have the, I would argue, military power. Of, of being super-powered mutants yeah. that can kind of just do what they want. Mm-hmm. How does that affect the sort of traditional <laughs> mutant metaphor that we're, we're used to oh, experiencing? Dear. Well, I think it's very dangerous because if the mutants are going to be an oppressed minority that you sympathize with, this risks that significantly. Right. Again, the fact that they don't really live in a democracy either is like a problem too. And I don't know how much we want to touch the Israel metaphor it's there. Their, their main, yeah, well, it's it, hitting you over the head with it there. I mean, their main <laughs> base of operations is in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. That's where they meet with the ambassadors and mm-hmm. whatnot, which <laughs> I know that a number of the ambassadors are revealed to be sort of hidden strike force member type people. But I love in comics when you have like, quote unquote, regular people and they're always still super fit and hot. <laughs> <laughs> sexy ambassadors everyone knows ambassadors spend half their time talking to foreign dignitaries and half their time in the gym half their time crossfit yeah i know i just always find that funny i I think the art in the series is wonderful Mm -hmm. but yeah these are very
very attractive imposters. You almost sort of know there's something wrong because of that, but then not really because that's just a superhero comics convention. Yeah. But if it's going to be this Israel metaphor, I don't know. I don't like that much at all. It's also like drawing on very old uh, turn-of-the-century science fiction ideas where technological progress is equated with evolutionary genetic stuff. And Mm -hmm. I mean... There's a reason that kind of fell out of favor around the 1930s and 40s. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I, well, I mean, getting back to the minority thing, though, because we could talk about the tech thing, too, which is, yeah, super interesting. But, I mean, if they're going to be, again, like an oppressed minority that we have sympathy for them becoming this ultra-powerful, non-democratic state. It, it, we've talked about this on a previous podcast when we did the podcast where we talked about New Mutants. Um, but one of the prob- inherent problems with the mutant metaphor is that it risks confirming <laughs> suspicions about minorities that they're dangerous mm-hmm. because the X-Men are actually dangerous. Yeah, so, like, I mean, the things that they're doing in this comic are the things that people who are anti-minorities claim minorities are doing, which is setting up secret cabals that plot to replace everyone else. And that's like literally what they're doing. Yeah. So I wonder how that works with the mutant metaphor in terms of it being a metaphor about oppression that we're sympathetic to and whether it could actually, at its worst, feed into white nationalist fantasies of what the oppressed other is up to. Yeah, I think repression is maybe one of the more important elements that Hickman is clearly calling a lot of attention to in Xavier's character and a few of the other characters who are calling the shots. The idea is, this is enough. Uh, And we see this through Moira, that they've tried it the other way. They've only suffered for that. Fine, we're going to fight back now. Uh, I'm not sure how that fits into the, the the horrible quagmire of like entailment relationships that you're talking about. Um, but I do think Hickman's calling our attention to that. It's just, it just speaks again too much to me to like paranoid kind of white nationalist fantasies of like, the Black Panthers, like the real Black Panthers, not the comic book one, are mm-hmm. like this group that they're like they're plotting the overflow of like well, over it, it sounds of like, like white society and they're gonna kill all of us and this is their big yeah. plan. It's like that's never been true. That's never been a thing. You see the X-Men doing these things that resonate a lot for me with white nationalist fears and fantasies. They sound like yeah, it's like exactly what the racist character in the Asgardian Wars said. Oh yeah. So that's a problem, yeah. I think. I don't know. I, again, I was willing to be like, okay, let's see where this goes. Like, I'm f- pretty confident this whole world order is going to collapse at some point, and then we'll get a critique yeah. of it at that point. But it definitely bothered me within the context of the series. It made me sad, sort of. I yeah. just kind of, at the end of it, I was just sort of like a bit sad. Because... They also kind of use precognition to justify it through Moira, right? Yeah. The idea mm-hmm. being that this is the path we have to take or the world's going to end kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's a kind of maybe a throwaway apology for it a little bit. <laughs> well, that conceit of, like, it kept making me want to care about the world ending, and I was fundamentally unclear about why I should. Yeah. I mean, we're living in this reality where it's, like, a thousand years in the future? You think the <laughs> Earth's still going to be here? It's going to be underwater. Like, what are we even talking about? Like, yeah. I mean, it's like, just given how much concern there is about climate change right now, it's just even, you know, being like, oh, a hundred years in the future. is like, how can I care about that when, I don't know. It's just like, the thing is, we're supposed to be keeping caring about the survival of the mutant race. And I, I sort of lost track of why that's so important at some point. Because the survival of humanity is not an inherent, sorry, mutantity, whatever. The survival <laughs> of mutants is not a worthy goal in and of itself. There's a question there of yeah, humanities, mean, you know, like is it, mutants are a hum- uh, metaphor for humanity. There, there's, there's something there about like, do we deserve to survive if we're not capable of like, preserving our world? Right. Like, oh, that's really dark. It's just that no, that it just works. It should because... seem weird to me because you have to really care about. We're making all of these sacrifices, like merging, mortgaging our values, doing all of these things for the sake of preserving the world. And I'm like, is the world worth preserving? Yeah, exactly. And what we're seeing at the start of year one is possibly the compromising of those values, and thus yeah. again creating this this sense that again maybe it's not that big a tragedy at the end. Dark. <laughs> Um, So in all three of our texts today, um, we have examples of very iconic um, visual artistry, or at least, you know, 
maybe soon to be iconic visual artistry. Uh, the reviews on the art in um, Hawkspox have been really positive to such an extent that um, famously Rob Liefeld actually argued that people only like this book because it's beautiful. Uh, and that makes people kind of not see the, the flaws in the story. Um, that's obviously a contentious point of opinion. Uh, and then when we look at um, the Asgardian Wars, we have Paul Smith, who is maybe the, the cultiest X-Men illustrator. He's the one that everybody points to as like the really, really good one who didn't get enough attention. And we have Art Adams, who was wildly popular, but has some, um, let's call it a reputation. You mentioned cheesecake in your introduction, yeah. which I, I, I think that kind of covers it. Um, what do you see in terms of the visual artistry of these different creators that makes them, um, you know, potentially comics or tours? What are they doing that's different and special and worth celebrating can i add just one thing about the legacy of art adams yeah i think part of the reason he's not thought of as fondly these days too is because liefeld aped a lot of his style but mm. liefeld mm. did it and now when we think about <laughs> the bad superhero artwork we tend to lump art adams in i think art adams was a better or is a better mm -hmm. illustrator than liefeld substantially despite mm -hmm. the cheesecake yep. um, just in terms of comprehensibility of his pages but yeah, I think his legacy has been hampered by that a little bit. I'll, I'll make a, a plug for Adam's late work on the Ultimate line. Terrible comics, wonderful art. Yeah, I, again, I do think he's a much better artist than Liefeld, just in terms of... You know, oh, yeah, okay, I have read that. Yeah, yeah what's, your, what's your take on Smith and Adams? What do they bring? Um, I think what I really liked about Smith is the variety of the bodies involved. Uh, that superhero comics tend to focus on certain body types and like two specifically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. There's still a lot of very buff people in these comics, but like facially the construction's a lot different than normal. Mm -hmm. Whereas Adams has some Adams is Adams is more complicated because yeah, the, the sexualized teens, which goes very much against how the new mutants had been typically depicted in that era but also just some just stunning visuals like anytime yeah like this the sheer joy in storm's face when she uh gets that hammer or the weird like mouth of skulls that hella has just a lot of visual flair that i find right. really appealing yeah you kind of stand back um Smith is well identified specifically for doing something that most comics artists either can't or don't do, which is he draws realistic clothing, mm. uh, yeah. which is extremely labor intensive, as you might imagine. I don't know. There's some interesting costume design in Asgardian Wars. Yes. Well, I mean, the thing that, I mean, in terms of speaking to that cultist status of, of Smith, definitely my attachment to him is... The, the outfits that he does for the X-Men when they're off duty just yeah. has really great 80s fashion for that. I was thinking of Patrick Nagel's posters, his sort of iconic sort of 80s style posters in terms of being a big influence on, on Smith's work and fashion illustration in general, I think, too, because it's so it's so wonderful. And he gives everyone such pretty hair. Gives oh, yeah. Yeah. Such nice I love Cyclops's like big like floppy like Cyclops. Oh, Kitty's like, curls are amazingly. I know. Yeah. I like I like Kitty with the tight curls. That's a good look for her too. <laughs> and he puts Nightcrawler in a cute little pilot's hat and scarf, which <laughs> seems very Nightcrawler. Yeah. How about um, um narrative context for the visualizations? Because Smith is regarded as kind of a domestic soap opera artist, mm -hmm. who again is really good at like at home in the mansion scenes. Mm -hmm. And here he's in these like elaborate Kirby-esque architectural creations, whereas Adams is regarded as being um, maybe ideally suited for kind of teen-oriented high fantasy. And that's exactly mm -hmm. what he's been given to draw in the Asgardian Wars. Well, I think a lot I think it's worth noting that, yes, it's in very Asgardian-type uh, architecture in the Smith story, but the main action is kind of characters talking over the, what's happened to them. So it still is a very high amount of just, let, well, let's discuss how you feel about these powers. And do you think there's something wrong with this utopia? It's almost well, like here's a play. what I think is wrong with this utopia. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I will say, like... The sense of space, particularly in the Alpha Flight kind of issues where they're going through this imaginary kind of palace and stuff is very confusing, which it has a right to be confusing because this is a magical imaginary space. But yeah, but I his background work sometimes isn't as strong as it could be, like because I mean, maybe he does is spending so much time on like faces and clothes and stuff that maybe sort of some things get left by the wayside inevitably. Um, in terms of, of Hawk's box. 
Marvel literally released uh, a little preview comic referring to the artists that they were bringing into this as the young guns. <laughs> uh, and I said, they are young and the reviews have been very, very good. What do you think they're doing to earn those good reviews? And how do you think it's working in service to the story? They're always like hyping some young gun artists. I mean, that's been happening since the days of like wizard comics and the heyday of Liefeld getting us back to him and sure. Art Adams as well. But um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's not like it's revolutionary artwork or something. It's just very nice. It's very mm. clean. It's very attractive. It, it uses I think, computer coloring. I think as is particularly relevant for the way that um, Hawks Pox was came out. It's very shareable. Yeah, like yeah. It, there's a lot of like. Okay, that image of Xavier as the first clones come out yes, uh, was to me very shared. Yeah, and Emma Frost walking to the embassy yeah. with the cuckoos flanking her is kind of already an iconic image. And well, I guess maybe it works with the iconicity sort of of the story of it being a story about ideas mm. rather than characters per se. I mean, I'd be interested to see how any of these artists handle some of those quieter character moments moving forward if right. they're asked well, to draw those and. Technically speaking, there is probably, I mean, it was a very tight schedule, but fewer pages to illustrate than usual because you've got these big text yeah. bits every few pages. Well, yeah. Of Hickman's favorite charts. Yeah, yeah there's a lot of, <laughs> well, we can talk about our mileage on the charts or we could not. I mean, it's probably just going to be like them or hated them. I liked some parts of it. I really it, don't like yeah. that they're keeping them on in the, on, oh, in the other series okay. because I don't yeah. think the other writers are... I mean, I don't think Claremont always handles, or not Claremont, I don't think Hickman always handles them great. I think a lot of writers are having a hard time wrapping their heads around them. Oh, yeah. Okay. I mean, there's some there's some delightful bits with, like, Mr. Sinister's report on, like, the gossip of the week. <laughs> that, that's which really enjoyable. Which is just Mr. Sinister gossiping with other Mr. Sinisters. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which is fabulous. That's cute. Definitely one of the, like, the, the, the few points of humor in this, or, like, there's a great, like, image of Nimrod clasping his hands yeah. in joy, which is just fabulous with those yeah, fat stubby arms of those. Maybe unfortunate that Hickman seems to give all his humor to his villain characters. Yeah, I know. Oh yeah, that's They're the only ones having fun. I know. Speaking of having fun though, the um, adjoining rooms thing, <laughs> where you see Cyclops, Wolverine, and Jean Grey having adjoining rooms on a map. Yeah, which happens technically after. Yes, I think it's yeah. X-Men number one. Yeah. I think that is playing very well to how the series is being received, that you give people things to speculate about but i mean the idea of even in a chart making canonical something that <laughs> fans have been so shipping like, forever that is so god damn it that is so <laughs> hickman to like yeah the, the the chart is more the story than the story right well i was curious about some questions of sexuality within i'll say i'll say it hawks pox <laughs> Because especially like with the concluding kind of scenes of them having like the party together and stuff, yes. and there's like it's I commonly don't referred know. to as the orgy scene. On yeah, I, okay, I'm glad that wasn't just me. It's very <laughs> orgy is just you. That special. It's very um that village place in the Matrix. Yeah, Zion. Yeah, Zion. So yeah, I got that sense, but then I also was frustrated by, like, and again, I get that well, that wasn't the point of the series or whatever, but it was just. Yeah. It's I don't a, want to say it's queer baby, but like a little bit because mm -hmm. I mean, it's like it's kind of this orgy scene and you see everybody hanging out together and there's like a queerness to that, but nothing is actually acted upon. There's no like... Right. Well, it's not even like dialogue. It's just snapshots yeah. of this. And hey, your favorite obscure character is alive <laughs> here too. I know, I know. Brought him back. Anyway, I'm Hi, excited Maggot. that potentially they're gonna like, you know, explore some sexual possibilities of the X-Men universe that would seem like they've always yeah. been there. <laughs> you know, like... I've written fan fiction about us. I've many X-Men fans. You know, what's really going on with these characters? But I definitely didn't see that playing out within the Hickman series in a way right. that I found yeah. satisfying. Yeah, I would but... not want to see Hickman writing that. Well, that's true, too. That's a good point. Well, how about Northstar in Asgardian Wars? Because that is as close to, I... to comics ever coming to a canonical representation of a gay character at that point in time. Yeah. Like, it is not subtle. But haven't you heard there were no gays in the Marvel Universe? In the exactly. <laughs> see, was that Marvel established editor, at that point? Uh, the writers have said that they, they knew that from the get-go, yeah. that that's so the was. Knew? because Claremont knew. it seems like Rogue might have some interest in Northstar in that. Well, yeah, and I, I think... But also hinting that maybe she absorbed something that... She has to know, though, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, because she, she absorbed his powers. Oh, she absorbed his memory. But also, like, I don't know if Byrne and 
Claremont are talking on talking terms at this point. No, and it very much looks like it's specifically um, Byrne was uncomfortable with the queer sexuality of X-Men comics. Yeah, because there are some suggestions that just the very first issues of Alpha Flight of mm. it. But, but there's a very kind of heartbreaking scene, I would argue, where, where North yeah. Star feels like he has to dance with this woman who's dressed up yeah. like the belle of the ball. And he's got this horrible stoic face. And he says, you know, essentially something to the effect of, I don't have any choice. Uh, like, it was heartbreaking. Yeah. And I am curious but about how many fans, I, like, it, read it that way. That does kind of yeah. time. I, I think that probably plenty did. But you do have to be sort of, like, attuned. To it does that. kind of make Rogue a little monstrous in that it, moment. It does. Because she knew. <laughs> but she knew. But I think I, I liked how the scene played out, though, because she knew like what she saw in his mind but she did a kind of stupid straight person thing of yeah. not getting how asking yeah. him to dance was yeah. going to affect him and she did feel bad about it and you could see her kind of learning from that experience yeah she it seems was a conscious great character moment i thought yeah like, i really she's wrong it. there but again she realizes that she's yeah. wrong but she didn't sort of realize i mean it's like an intersectionality and thing it, that happens well, right? she's a mutant and she understands that but she didn't realize how this extra and a thing really affects, affects North and Star. A, a common way of rogue like trying to work with her powers she doesn't yeah. like the fact yeah. that she's forced to absorb other people yeah. she doesn't know how to handle those boundaries well i really loved how north star initially reacts to that the, the idea that he's kept the secret and it's so fundamental to his being and he knows that she knows it uh, and just his anger and discomfort with her as a result of that i thought that again was a really nice mm -hmm. character moment. Yeah. i really enjoyed that yeah i enjoyed some of his stuff the most and of any of honestly i don't think it, claremont does very well with the alpha flight team no I agree. uh maybe because there's not a lot oh, to God. do with them they're, yeah they're, about they're pretty pucks, thin about stereotypes oh, God. About, like he, uh, he gets his dwarfism cured uh, it's really um <laughs> well and, <laughs> and, and i guess a, and, you want a problematic ableist story well, this is aurora <laughs> Yeah, she gets she gets her. Uh, what does she technically have? Like schizophrenia or bipolar, or is it just a magical kind uh, of? I think she's dual. I think it's a dissociative identity disorder. Yeah, right? okay, that's, yeah. that's right. And she gets and that it gets cured, cured yeah. because that's apparently a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So lots rough. of problematic mm. <laughs> cure <laughs> narratives going on here. That I mean, I don't yeah. think that those are like interrogated as well as they could be. Let's yeah. say that. Uh, I'll be providing a review today. I'm looking at Joseph Dorowski's X-Men and the Mutant Metaphor, Race and Gender in the Comic Books. Uh, this volume was published by Roman and Littlefield in 2014, based on Dorowski's PhD thesis from Michigan State University. Dorowski's text is not the first exploration of X-Men as a meditation on various forms of prejudice, but it is the most expansive, offering a rare bit of rigor to a widely held comics perception that has too frequently been bandied about casually and without sufficient substantiation or maybe even exploration. The book moves from era to era, with five of seven chapters devoted to a particular period in X-Men history. Book ended by an overarching first chapter and a seventh chapter devoted to some fairly primitive but no less interesting content analysis of X-Men comics, which focuses primarily on the membership of the team itself through different epochs. Along the way, Dorowski provides expansive discussion on the different metaphors that X-Men comics can speak to, with obvious attention placed on issues of race and gender. Uh, he focuses a lot of attention on Chris Claremont's cultivation of strong female characters in comics, something I can support for purely selfish reasons, such that the outcome was never really in doubt, and on the cultivation of character and narrative elements that speak particularly to the Jewish experience in America. Dorowski's methodology blends history, interviews, close readings, and honest-to-goodness graphs. He casts a very large net here, and he uses a very large toolbox to do so, if you'll forgive my mixed metaphors. Where X-Men and the mutant metaphor falls short is in what sometimes feels like an attempt to craft a holistic perspective, the sum totality of X-Men symbolism. This creates some friction with contemporary approaches to comics continuity, or lack of continuity, and risks generalization in a way that has the potential to undermine the specificity and complexity of individual arguments or chapters, and case studies from Dorowski's readings. For me, it never fully crosses that line, and given the complexity of the subject, I actually kind of like the way that the book comes off as a little bit scattershot at times even while striving to be holistic at other times. All this is to say that your mileage may vary. That said, if you are interested in studying X-Men comics in depth, Dorowski's work has to be at the top of your list. He might be the best there is at what he does, but what he does isn't always very nice. You're not going to agree with everything he has to say, but you're going to have a whole lot to think about. And for me personally, that's what I'm looking for in a scholarly text. Either way, I hope you survive the experience.
Uh, so as we've made a habit of doing, um, we're going to offer some recommendations. We thought it would be appropriate for this particular episode to recommend great scenes in X-Men comics history. Uh, Anna, do you want to start us out? <laughs> Why do I have to go first? Okay, well, mine, I tried to find the actual issue, but I can't. You, we, you seem to think it's somewhere in the... It's from Excalibur, so the original <laughs> volume of Excalibur. Um, from We think it's somewhere in the 30s. Anyway. I said 30s, Anna said 40s. Yeah, so well, we can, we can figure this out after anyway, the fact. And I've got the reprints of them, but my books are all, all over the place. Um, anyway, it's a scene in which, so throughout the series, so this has been like a buildup of like at least like a couple of dozen issues of Nightcrawler kind of being this nice guy to Megan, who's a mutant, who's the girlfriend of Captain Britain. And, you know, well, just basically that, being this kind of like nice guy who's like listening to all her problems and kind of being mm-hmm. sneaky about getting in there. Right? Very flirtatious. Yeah. yeah, like in a way that, you know, wasn't completely above board. And Captain Britain calls him out on this, and they have a huge fight in which he actually ends up breaking Nightcrawler's arm. Which, it's not obviously these actions of Captain Britain are not acceptable or appropriate, and the fact that they're fighting over a woman is problematic and all of those things. And yet what I really liked about this scene is the way it's sort of dealing with Nightcrawler's sort of character motivation in one of the most complex ways that has ever been seen before. He has this like obsessive need to be liked, including this need to be liked by women. Mm -hmm. And to see how that sort of backfires on him and to see him have to confront that, which he does in a real way in the aftermath of that fight. And, you know, you see some nice serialization stuff where he's got this broken arm for like six issues after that, that which is great. So in terms of like character work... That is the kind of character work I very much found was missing from Hawks Pox, <laughs> in which Nightcrawler in particular is really reduced to catchphrases and not a lot else. So when we talk about returning to the X-Men that we really loved, I would really love to return to kind of that depth of character work. That's mine. That's my scene. How about you, Michael? Well, so this requires some uh, preface. Uh, the short answer is it's X-Men Volume 2, Issue 70. This is around, so I I fully acknowledge that my fondness for this is probably colored by the fact that it was one of my earliest X-Men comics that I've read. It was 1997, so it had just come off of the Operation Zero Tolerance crossover, mm-hmm. uh, which saw basically the X-Men scattered to the four winds. Uh, this was the issue where the team finally starts to come back together, but they're dealing with Bastion's kind of last strike that he has a nano bomb implanted in cyclops and the mansion's been stripped to the bone there's no technology there and so they're left oh luckily one of their three new members is a doctor Uh, another one of them has detachable bones that let you act as surgery tools and the third has maggots that can eat bombs (laughs) very convenient oh was marrow finally useful (laughs) yeah yeah Uh, and yeah, there was just this moment that we've fallen apart, but we're getting back together and I don't know how it's going to work, but we'll find a way through this. And it, it felt really nice. Like I was joining something. It does feel very excellent. I appreciate you repping that era, which is not an era that people go yeah. back to a lot, but I've read that era and it's, it's not the worst. <laughs> I will say that. I enjoyed those issues. Uh, my take is going to be from the best-selling single-issue comic book of all time, the one that's in the dollar bins at every comic book store you go to, uh, X-Men number one, uh, sorry, X-Men volume two number one, um, which I have argued is a misunderstood comic because it has so much continuity in it. But there's a really nice scene for me where Magneto um, um, raises a submarine that he had sunk in, like 200 issues ago uh, from the bottom of the ocean, and the X-Men come to stop him, and... The X-Men can perceive that Magneto is on a really bad track and the world is going to suffer and they need to stop him. And Magneto doesn't get it. And when the X-Men start attacking him, and in particular when Wolverine is like trying to kill him, he doesn't get it. And he just feels betrayed and he's shocked. Why are you attacking me? We're on the same team kind of thing. I just thought it was a really nice moment for um, pointing out that contrast between the villain's perspective of their actions and the hero's perspective of the villain's actions, which I think is something that was really... um, important to Claremont's run in particular, making Magneto not a Silver Age mustache twirling villain, making him deeply sympathetic, because I think that's what made him a really good villain uh, in light with some other you know kind of villains who have done the same thing over the years in comics. 
I wish that scene had not been drawn in the ultra-exaggerated <laughs> style of Julie. <laughs> it would have really helped. Your interpretation of it is so wonderful. I might be charitable in my interpretation. Well, and clearly other people <laughs> like that scene too, since they kind of redo it in X-Men First Class. I haven't. Them. Yeah, it's been posterized yeah, too. I haven't actually. read it. I imagine Magneto's abs were of a great help in that. They were spectacular. <laughs> he needs so many abs to control And his, his pectorals were... <laughs> Abnormally oh, large. I'm not making fun of you. That was a wonderful like, explanation of that scene. Thank you. Yeah. So <laughs> thank you. So the last thing for us to do today is to um, thank some folk. Uh, we'd like to thank the St. Jerome's for the use of their equipment uh, and Anna for the use of space in recording this episode today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and thank we would you like guys for coming all the way down. <laughs> we, we would also like to call attention to our um, Twitter feed for anyone who wants to send us any comments or questions or suggestions. You can reach us at three panel contrast. That's at three the let the number sorry uh and then panel contrast uh and if by chance you're interested in more claremonty x-men thing there is a website called www.claremontrun.com and a twitter account as well at claremont run which i know somebody who works at and it's Uh, really really good (laughs) thank you Uh, and then next month we will be back with uh, a look at ducks uh, we're going to tackle Howard the Duck compared to um, 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 Scrooge McDuck. We're going to be looking at the life and times of Scrooge McDuck. Don Rosa's megatext is the term that Michael has recommended to describe it uh, on the life of Scrooge McDuck, uh, alongside a look at the first arc of Howard the Duck by Steve Gerber and, and a few different artists. So we hope you will tune in then. Thank you. <laughs>